Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle, along with my co-host, Rachel Santizo. And look what's missing. There's no guest. Where'd it go? Where did they go? What's they, happening? They canceled on us. No. Actually, what we thought we'd do, because this is our, I think, 116th uh, um, podcast, and uh, I thought, and we always just introduce ourselves and we're presuming people might have an idea who we are. Mm. So I thought it would be enlightening to the people who do follow this podcast to perhaps bear our souls to the world. Okay. okay. You know, why are we here? What, what, you know, why are yeah. we doing this podcast? You know, so Rachel Santizo, and I'll bear my soul as well. Okay. Sort of like, I'll, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Okay. I like that. That, that was an old kid's game, I guess, or something. <laughs> So anyway, how uh, just you know maybe you can go through your story because you've got a you got a a pretty wild one from where you were to where you are now. Well, beginning think, at a young age too. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. I, well, I think I think what would be helpful is to start out why why we're doing this podcast together. I always love to start out with our with our love story, Randall. Um, we started out together <laughs> because I didn't like Randall. And I think that's a powerful piece of connection and recovery sure. and relationships. So we'll start out there. Um, I didn't like Randall. Um, but that was uh, due to uh, my own ignorance and what recovery, what you can gain in recovery. So, Randall, we met at um, the Homeless Candlelight Vigil here in Salt Lake, and um, I, was a por- I was a part of a We should committee. explain what that is. Every year, Do it. They, everybody, uh, mm-hmm. everybody in the recovery community, the people who work with uh, people experiencing homelessness, get together uh, in in December, uh, in a candlelight vigil to honor all of the homeless people who have passed away uh, the previous year. So yeah. we're and it's a very somber ceremony. There's yeah. there's a choir and there's some speakers and you yeah. read the names of all all of the people who died. Yeah. And so it, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, I, uh, I appreciate you know, that. Yeah. I appreciate that. And um, and I'm on a committee and I, I I help read the names every year and I come from homelessness and. The year uh, I was told that Randall was going to share um, a story, and I was uh, I was really upset because I was like, "Why is a newscaster going to share a story?" It's At the time, I was a TV anchorman. Yeah, right? and I I felt I felt um, angry because why would it, why would Randall Carlyle share anything of this topic or these people? And and I was there's some highly paid anchor asshole. Yeah, you don't know anything about <laughs> yeah. this topic or the people, and right. they mean a lot to me. I come from it, and I, I oftentimes know the names. And so, um, but then Randall got up there and shared his story about his friend Bones. I will never forget it. And instantly, I fell in love with Randall. And instantly after, I made an amends to Randall. I went up and I told him exactly how I felt about him. I'm sorry. I hated your guts and I didn't I even did. know you. I did. I <laughs> did. I, I told him exactly how I felt before he was going to speak and I, I apologized to him. And we have been dear friends since actually and done a lot of work and now we do a podcast together. And we both work at Odyssey House. Yeah. And, and yeah. I should tell you what, the reason I was asked to speak is mm-hmm. I'm a recovering alcoholic and I and I was at the time chairing an AA meeting down in the area of town mm-hmm. where most of the homeless people hung out, 
And one of the guys who came to my meeting on a regular basis was a guy that was affectionately known as Bones because he was mm-hmm. skinny and you could see his bones all the time. Yeah. And he was a meth dealer in the neighborhood and a real meth addict. Uh, mm-hmm. When he first came to the AA meetings, I couldn't even understand what he was going. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what in the world? You know, and and he did stay clean for nine months. And, and every weekly meeting, it would be he'd become a little more clear. And I found out he loved Wendy's cheeseburgers. And so I'd take him out for a cheeseburger after every meeting. And we became pretty good friends. And my story was the fact that so he first time in forever that he was that he stopped using meth he was not he was about ready to get his nine-month chip and he kept complaining about a pain in his lower back Mm -hmm. and i took him to the to huntsman cancer institute and he was diagnosed with liver cancer uh fatal liver cancer that nobody could do anything about and he was dying and you know and then he started asking me stuff like well why shouldn't i why shouldn't I just go out in a blaze of glory and shoot up yeah. a bunch of meth and everything? And, and, and that's what he ended up doing. And so that was, that was my story. So yeah. but you didn't know that at the I time. I didn't know yes. that. I also didn't know that you were in recovery. Not that that would make a difference, but it wasn't really known back then. But that qualified me for being there, well, but you didn't know. Well, that. I just didn't, I didn't know how magnificent of an individual you were well, from, from, my, from my perspective. Here's $10 you for just, saying that. Thank you. I'm going to go get yeah. So let's get back in. Let's, oh, let's get into yeah. your story now. Um, so the reason that I'm uh, a part of this podcast is it's not that that I speak on this podcast, it's because I have passion about this podcast. So sharing stories from from the streets in the past, and um, that is how we create change in our community. And I'm passionate about it because I have a story myself, and and I have this honor to be able to 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 bring others to share their stories because. Um, I get to honor that I get to share mine because I'm in recovery and I'm in recovery, not because I'm better above anybody else, but because for some reason, somebody told me once that either you are the message or you give the message. And for whatever reason today, Randall, you and I both have 10 years gratefully. And so we get to, um, we get to share our story. And so I started, I actually, uh, I hated drugs and alcohol. Oh, I hated it. My, I had a stepdad that would drink in a family life, and, and I had a twin brother that got into, they called it crank back then. Okay. And so during high school, I hated it, but um, I, I loved to fight. I had a very traumatic growing up, and so I had all the behaviors for it, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't really, um, I didn't really use, but I would love to fight all the time. I got kicked out of school for fighting. There was something about it. And, and I know it sounds, I don't know how it sounds to people, but if I punched you in the face, it gave me this sense of relief. Like I felt really good inside. It gave me just this, um, something that I was lacking or missing inside. And so, um, that's just how I was growing, like growing up. And so I had a lot of these behaviors, but as I started growing up, um, I was introduced. I remember I had to have a hysterectomy. Um, I dealt with a lot of death from the time that I was 16. My dad, um, my dad had cancer, and so I watched him die. And I remember walking in that door, 
every time he lived in a different state. And I remember when I'd walk in that door, just being scared of what he was going to look like. He had liver cancer. Okay. And so they said he would, he had six months to live and, um, there's just nothing you can do. You get no choice. You either um, get to choose to have the courage to watch someone you love die or not watch them die and just wait until they die. And um, just uh, every time I was just so scared because they just didn't know what he was going to look like. And so watching someone, um, yeah, I don't even know how to put that into words, but so I just walk in, and I remember the last time that my twin brother and I walked in. Um, he's just yellow and sunken, and um, can't speak, and you don't know what to say. And it's basically, you know, I just I just remember those moments and being scared as a little girl. And then um, after we left, we got the phone call, and people saying that he was holding on just until um, we came to see him. And that just affects you as a child. Um, How old were you? 16. Okay. So that happened. Um, and then the next year, my brother died. My older brother died in a car wreck. And I remember being at school, and I remember a girl that I hung out with coming up to me and saying that she couldn't hang out with me because her mom said I was bad luck because I had a brother. My uh, my dad and my brother died, and I was like, I'm just a girl. That's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, I didn't um, realize that. And I had some other things in my family, and I'm cautious because my story, I don't want to hurt people, but my mom had left me, and so my first stint of homelessness was um, when I was younger, when I was 15. And so I had a, I had a foster family, and so I, I just – I was a young child – living I lived in my car I lost my dad my mom left I lost my brother and so I was looked at I had these adults and this these people around me and I lived in Boise but I was looked at like I was tainted the word for me that I use to describe myself is tainted and instead of people helping me I'm looked at like there's something wrong with me and so this is embedded in me um, from people around me, but also in myself, because I'm wondering why all these people are dying or leaving me, because clearly I already feel like something's wrong with me, and I also have the people around me enforcing that. Um, and so I go through that, and I see my twin brother struggling, and I want to graduate. I like school, and I want to do something different, so I want to graduate, and I have this family take me in, and I'm still close to my foster dad today. We say foster because they're Hispanic, and I didn't look like them, but they're, I call him my dad. Um, so I graduate high school, but while I'm doing that, I'm getting in fights all the time. I'm always in trouble. Um, and then I end, up, I end up moving to Salt Lake, and I, I, meet a, I meet a guy, and during this time, directly after, my older sister dies of meningitis. And so I'm, I don't know how this stuff happens. I still continue to have this, like, death follow me. So I, I still feel like there's something wrong with me. And I have, my, I have my, I get pregnant, and I have my son, and then I get pregnant again right after. Um, and I feel like at this time, I found my purpose. I'm a mom. 
like, oh, I have a purpose in life. Like, I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to be everything that I've always wanted. I'm going to be a parent. Um, I just felt like I find my purpose in life. And my second pregnancy, when I go to have my son, um, my son, uh, my son had died. And it's called fetal demise. And I'm young. I'm 20, having my second child. And then, like, you can have miscarriages, like, when you're, uh, like, a couple months pregnant or you have a baby. That's all that I'm aware of. I didn't know that you could have a full baby inside you die. I don't know. I didn't know there was anything of so this you sort. Carried, so you carried this baby for months yeah, I was that almost wasn't full alive. Term. I was almost full term. Wow. Um, I woke up. I had a headache. I went in, and they couldn't find the heartbeat. And they told me that he had died. So at that time, you can't, you don't get the choice of, um, I'm like, okay, so I'm having a miscarriage, but I'm almost full term, so it's called fetal demise, so you have to deliver the baby. Um, So you have to go into labor, and so you do a death and birth certificate at the same time, and so I'm 20 years old, and um, I don't want to go into too much because I don't, uh, on this podcast, uh, but I was blamed for it. I should have known. That's what I was told. Like, I should have known this has happened. I should have known earlier. I should have went in earlier. Um, so I'm forced labor. It takes me two days to deliver my son. And I have to prepare myself to see my son. I have to make all these decisions. Do I want to see him? Name him? Do I want to have a burial? All these things. I have to tell everybody I'm, I'm not. I, I have to make all these decisions. Those are horrible um, decisions. Yeah, and then I have to decide if I want to see him, just all these things. And so I decide to see him, and if you see your baby, you get the option of holding him for a couple hours or her. Um, so I decided to have him, and I held him for as long as I could. And if you've ever held your dead child, I don't... <sighs> There's no words for that. Just none. Ugh. None. Um, did you name the child? I did. I named him Brendan, and I don't talk about it much. I have a B right here, um, and I don't. I don't talk about that as much. That one. That one's still really hard for me because at times I do. I feel like um, that tainted feeling comes in. Like I should have known. What if I went in earlier? And a lot of times you don't know why you have a fetal demise. Um, I did find out the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and strangled him. And as a mom, when you're in there and you're like, how do you not know? Um, That one haunts me, and I think it always will, Randall, no matter how hard I try or how much work or therapy I go through. Amongst, like, my dad and the other death, like, people that are close to me, like, your family, your siblings, like, I, I don't know. And so as you go through treatment and stuff, you find out things out of your control and how to handle them. I don't know how to make answers of them but you just still had to put one foot in front of the other but these things will still haunt you for the rest of your life um so i had i my you blame yourself even though you, even though you, anybody can tell you know you logically anything. that it wasn't your fault yeah. but you still blame yourself absolutely right? i mean people can tell you all the things in the world and even if you know those things it doesn't make your heart feel any better right it just doesn't. And how do you make sense of never getting to meet your son, but he was yours? Hmm. Um, 
Thank so, you for sharing that. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one. How does that relate to your using? Well, I, I still didn't I still didn't use. I think it, I held on to my son, um, my son Devin, even more so. Um, and I wanted to just be the best mom. Um, but I felt really unsupported in my marriage. Um, and I didn't have very much support. It was just kind of me and me. I didn't really have um, a lot of support through that. And then so just moving forward, um, I got pregnant again, and I was really grateful because I got pregnant with a girl. And I was, I was really grateful because for some reason that just kind of gave me a sense of um, peace because I wasn't replacing my son, and so it just allowed me a little bit of sense of peace. But I would always have to go to LDS Hospital every week to get checked on, so it was very stressful. Because you would have been really paranoid that the same thing was going to happen, right? Yeah, there was, there was this sense of, do I say I have three kids? Do I say I've only had two kids? Do I, um, how do I even say how many kids? Because am I ignoring my son that died? Like, I, I still kind of um, am challenged with that. Like, you just don't even know how do you even pronounce or say. Um, but I had a healthy baby girl. and um, Who is now a beautiful woman. Oh, she's the best. Yeah. She's the best. How old is she? Uh, she's 19. And your son? He is 23. And you yeah. have grandbabies now? I have two. I have a boy and a girl. So I get the best of both worlds. So. I'm a very lucky girl. So I just, I just go through these traumatic experiences. And then shortly after, I had a hysterectomy. I have some stuff going on. And so I had a hysterectomy. That was the first time that um, I was introduced to pain pills. And so when I took the pain pills, I, I felt good, Randall. And I don't know why. This is the thing is that some people are built different. And so I've just learned that when I take a pain pill, I remember when I got out of the hospital and I took a pain pill, I felt beautiful. I cleaned my house. I felt happy. I felt on top of the world. I didn't know anything about this addiction and addiction to pain pill. But what I did know is, holy shit, I feel all the things that I've just wanted to feel. For a long time. Yeah. And this solved it, an opioid pain pill. Oh, yeah. Who'd have thought? I know. And back then, mm -hmm. uh, doctors readily prescribed them, and, yeah. and there was none of this concern about addiction. Yeah, no. And I, ha I had a healthy boy, a healthy girl. Like, I, yeah. So that Life was my, is good. Yeah, that was the start of my pain pills. And so I took the prescription, and I was just on top of the world, and I was just going on with my life. And um, I ended up getting a divorce, um, which is not a bad thing, but there's a lot of stuff to it. But I was a single mom with two young kids and just trying to, you know, get on my feet and get going. And then um, it's just I didn't start using until I was about 24. Um, I don't remember what exactly it was, but it started with pain pills and I got that feeling again. And so I was prescribed pain pills uh, for fibromyalgia. I had, like, uh, back pain. And so they said I had fibromyalgia, but really it was stress. I know it was, like, stress, depression. I know it was, like, mental health things. But, oh, man, the pain pills, I, I, was, off to the, I was off to the races, mm -hmm. as they say. But I didn't know what those races meant. Um, and so I took pain pills for a while. And then I remember when I had my first withdrawal, I went to, it used to be Cottonwood Hospital. I went to the hospital and they told me that I was having a panic attack. I didn't realize what a withdrawal was. I didn't know any of what that was. We call it dope sickness now. Oh, and, man. and it's real. And it feels like death. It feels like absolute death. And then when I realized I was addicted, the two things I knew was that I was a piece of shit and I was going to lose my kids. You hear about addiction, you see it, all these things. And those are the two things I was fully aware of. 
And so I didn't want to lose my kids. My kids was my purpose and my everything, and I loved my kids. Even though I was addicted, I loved my kids more than anything. So I continued to use. I, I worked at a place, and this girl was getting morphine pills, so I would buy them off of her. And it's a very taxing business. It's very, very taxing, but I'd buy them off of her, and I'd have game plans. Every week I had a game plan to, like, okay, I'm just going to buy this many so I'm not sick so I can continue to show up for work and do all these things, and it just it just spirals from there. So then I started getting introduced to cocaine, and then I started getting introduced to um, – I never smoked weed. I'm actually – I get paranoid on weed. Interesting enough, I will I will you don't like to up, drink either. No, I will, I will shoot <laughs> up for days, but I will not smoke weed. Okay. I don't know. That's just how it works. You draw but, the line. I'm oh, proud yeah. of you. I know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but it just spirals from there, right? People, connections. You start buying from the streets. You start. It, it's just how it uh, how it goes. And so, um, I started uh, trying to keep it to only using when my kids would go to their dads, like really with the pain pills. But I would have to have a handful of pills to get out of bed, just to get out of bed. And so it became that I would only use. Uh, I was only using pills just to maintain. That was it. I wasn't using them for anything else at that point. I was doctor shopping. I'd go into the ER to say, oh, I slip and fell. I hurt myself. They didn't have doppel. Like, they didn't look that stuff up. I'd go to multiple doctors. And then I was really sick, and I had a friend introduce me to heroin. Um, I was introduced to meth and stuff, too, but meth doesn't help with the withdrawals. It's, right. it's, um, and so I remember the first time that I did heroin, I used the needle, and the reason I used the needle was because I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to smoke it because I didn't want the film to be around my apartment because I didn't want my kids to have anything to do with it. These were my intentions, and then my intentions were: okay, I'm going to use heroin for two weeks, so I'm off the pills, and then I'll be drug free. <laughs> that was my that was good logic. <laughs> that was my absolute intentions, and that's not what happened. Once you use the needle, that's it. And my life just spiraled out of control. I started getting into gang life. I dated a guy in a gang. He, yeah, I loved my kids so much that I signed the rights over. I gave my kids away. I wasn't being any kind of mom. I don't know where they were. I would pawn, I pawned all their stuff, everything they had. I didn't, my kids will tell me stories of things I did that's heartbreaking. If, if, um, I don't know how they ate. I would dumpster dive. I would just do so many things that um, is unreal and that you shouldn't do, but that's what you become, and that's who you are. It's so powerful. So I signed the rights over um, of my kids, and I thought that would be enough, but it, it wasn't enough at that time. And so I just kept going more, and I just got to a point where I was exhausted. And, yeah. So uh, how did you finally uh, deal with the addiction? And, and how, I mean, how did you successfully, you, 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 you celebrated 10 years of sobriety now. How, how did you do all that? Um, there was a couple instances where I feared for my life, the life that I was living. Um, and you, you were living down on what we used to call the block, which is mm-hmm. down around uh, one of the, for those of you watching out of town, a, a park near the downtown area where mm-hmm. where all the drug dealers and prostitutes and mm-hmm. and addicts and everybody hung out. And yeah. You, and you were there. Yeah. I would stay off North Temple a lot, and I would sleep underneath cars. So I was in a really uh, domestic violence situation, and so I'd sleep under cars often. 
because I was afraid. I was so afraid, and, and the tires would block the view. I could see anybody coming, but nobody could see me. And naturally, people asked me all the time, were you afraid the cars would start? And I was never afraid. Oftentimes, I just wished that they would start, so it would naturally take my life because I wanted to die so bad, but I, I didn't have the courage to take my own life, but I wanted it to end. Um, and so I, uh, I got exhausted. There was one night where I was really scared for my life, and I did what you never do, and I called the police. Yourself? You called them and said what? I had them come to the hotel I was at. And arrest you? No, no, I wanted them to arrest the people I was with. The people ran. Um, they got away. And, um, yeah, so. So how did you get into recovery? Um, so then after that night, I was really scared for my life, so I called around for treatment centers. I was unaware of treatment centers or where to go, and I found a place called VOA that would take people without insurance. And so you had to call every 15 minutes to get a bed there. Wow. And it took me over a week to get a bed. Hmm. Back then, it was not easy to get a treatment bed. You couldn't just call and get into treatment. So it took me, I called every 15 minutes till they had a bed available. And I went in there. Um, I stayed there for two months. They were kind enough to let me stay because it took a lot longer to get a bed into treatment. I mean, it could take you up to eight months to mm -hmm. get a bed. Um, and people would talk about treatment beds. And... Uh, Everybody talked about this place called Odyssey House, and most people didn't want it. They said it was long and it was hard. It's hard. Oh, yeah. Too many rules. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I said, that's the one I want because I was so fearful and I was so afraid. Um, I thought I would always be like that, and I wanted my kids back so desperately, and I had no clue how. So uh, VOA let me stay there for two months to the day, and then I went to Odyssey House. So you went through Odyssey House? I Have stayed you, in Odyssey House for a year. Did it only take you once? I mm -hmm. mean, you stayed clean the rest of the time. I have. Yeah, I went You're unusual time. for, you know. know. So, okay, you get out of Odyssey House and... Yeah, I went, to, I went through Odyssey House. And then right when I got out of Odyssey House, I went to um, legal aid to go get a lawyer so I could start fighting for my kids. I should have gotten custody after a year. If I stayed clean, I used to have to do the hair follicle testing. I had this little patch of hair for a long time because they'd have to do the follicle testing and test my hair. And yeah. so I always had this little patch for just a long time and it grew out. But, um, and then after a year, so this is why time frames are so dangerous for people in recovery because we like to have, we like to know when and where exact and then in recovery. It never, it generally never works out when or how we expect things. And so after a year, I did not get custody of my kids back. And at that very point, I was like, F the world, F all of this. Like, why even fight? Like, I'm, I'm over it. I'm not doing this. Um, but you didn't relapse. I didn't. I didn't. Good. And I was like, no, it, in that moment, something changed. And I, I said, if I, if I give up now, then everybody else is right. And everybody else wins. And I love my kids. I made a promise. If I get my kids back, I will do whatever it takes. And I've stuck to that promise. No matter how hard life gets, I'll do whatever it takes. And so I continued to fight, and it took me two and a half years to regain joint custody of my kids back. I couldn't take them anywhere. I couldn't ride in the car. I couldn't take them anywhere unsupervised or see them or visit them. I couldn't do anything alone with my kids. Like I was this huge monster. Now I didn't make the best decisions. 
And I, I definitely had a lot to prove, but I could not do anything with my kids at all. So we've got two minutes left. Oh no! Believe it or not. I'm sorry. Uh, so you got you you got custody of your kids. You have a great relationship I now. I do. I know I do. you post pictures all the time on mm-hmm. Facebook. Yeah, uh, I do. You worked at Odyssey for a while. Mm-hmm. Then you went and worked for a while at Fit to Recovery. Mm-hmm. Then you came back to Odyssey, uh-huh. and now you're in a very important position at Odyssey. Yeah. Which I am. is? I'm a program manager. Program manager yeah. of one of our main residential houses, which is a big job because you have like, you're in charge of 50 people. Yeah, right? 54 people, 54 me's. Well, not to mention staff. So 54 you's yeah. who are going through recovery yeah. and staff. Yeah. Wow. I know. Interesting. It's crazy. You how enjoy it works the job? Out. I do. I love it very much. I absolutely do. Life, yeah. life is good for you now. It is. You know, I'm, th- I'm thankful. You, you may not be able, if you're watching this, you may not be able to tell that you are, how, how tall are you? 5'1". Five, 5'1", one. Five, one and you weigh? 115. One what? 115. Okay, 115. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen you lifting rates, weights, doing stuff <laughs> at, at Fit to Recover, and you say you like to fight. I'm glad you and I have never gotten in a fight because I'm not a fighter because you would have beat the crap out of me. And you know what I appreciate is that you took up this whole half hour I know, so, so I don't sorry. have to bear my soul. Uh, oh, no. I didn't even realize See, I, that. I could do mine in a 15-second soundbite. Successful TV anchor man, uh, functional alcoholic the whole time, went through four wives, uh, finally decided that, that life wasn't working that well. It was professionally, but not personally. So I finally went through an IOP program at uni, an intensive outpatient program at uni, uh, embraced AA, have been clean and sober for 10 years, mm-hmm. and now I'm working at Odyssey because I retired from TV. See, I did that in 15 seconds. I love you, Randall. You I'm go. sorry. No, no, that's great. It's, it was. Thank you for sharing your story. I know it's helpful for people to hear your story because you're not alone in mm-hmm. stories like that. Yeah. Um, but it still can be painful when you look back at some of the aspects. So yeah. thanks for being open and honest, which is what we all have to do to stay in recovery. Right? Thanks, Randall. Thank I love you. you. Thank you. I'm glad you don't hate me anymore. I I'm glad I you don't fight you. me anymore. <laughs> You, like you never have. Thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.